Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Text for this morning, the reading from Acts chapter 1, Vicar has just read to us a moment ago. So the events that are recorded on our text for today bridge the gap between Jesus' ascension into the full glory presence of God and the special outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's going to come next Sunday on the day of Pentecost. And the Mount of Olives, which you see pictured here, also called the Olivet in our text for today, lies just to the east of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And at the base of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. And in between the Temple Mount and Olivet runs the Kidron Valley. A Sabbath day journey was about 2,000 paces or approximately three quarters of a mile. The account of the ascension is recorded in the verses just prior to our text, verses 1 to 11, where Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples had gone out of the city, down through the Kidron Valley, and up to a spot on the Mount of Olives that the disciples did not yet fully comprehend what Jesus had come to do or what they were supposed to do next is revealed in their final question before he was removed from their sight. They asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Still trapped in the small world of, of power politics and national identity, Jesus gently directed them to go back to Jerusalem and wait until they receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then it will become crystal clear that they were to be his witnesses to the world that the resurrection changes everything. As we studied and prayed over this text this week, trying honestly to find a way into it that actually speaks to our moment in time, it struck me that like these first followers of Jesus, we often find ourselves at the end of one season of life and at the beginning of another. And if that's not true for you, just wait, it soon will be. <laughs> Today is the end of the Easter season. It's the end of this sermon series about the life-changing power of the resurrection. But of course, the power of the resurrection keeps going and going until Jesus comes again in glory. So I'd like for you this morning as we enter into this text to think about all of the what next moments in your life. We've just come through graduation season. This week our preschoolers uh, crossed over and shook hands with their kindergarten teachers. The eighth graders of St. Luke's graduated on Friday night and have high school beckoning them forward and the high school graduates are at another exciting what next moment. It's a holiday weekend, which means that spring is coming to a close and the season of summer is looming on the horizon, which for us here in Florida also means the hurricane season starts June the 1st. And let's not even get started on retirement plans or doctor's diagnoses. 
So here's where I'd like to take you for a few minutes today. When life challenges us with what's next, it's the resurrection that changes the way that we answer the question. So let's note three things from this text. First, that the followers of Jesus met together and they devoted themselves to prayer. Secondly, that they then had to face the obvious. And finally, that they trusted the Lord who is the only one who knows the heart to show them the way forward. So first, the followers of Jesus met together and devoted themselves to prayer. Now, in the verse just before this that you heard the vicar read, there is a a list of the remaining 11 disciples. These are the men who were chosen specifically by Jesus to be in a more intense learning community than the other followers of Jesus who came to believe in him as true God, one with the Father, one with the Holy Spirit, and yet at the same time, true man like us in every way except without sin. For three years, the twelve had walked and talked with Jesus who lived the life that we were all supposed to live and have not and then died the death we deserved to die but through faith in him will not. Now these twelve minus one, had been on the inside with Jesus when he explained his teaching. They had had opportunity to engage him in the questions and the answers as they tried to get their heads around what had been God's plan from the very beginning to rescue the whole world, to rescue all people, to restore the creation itself. We need to remember that Jesus' teaching was not an abandonment of what had come before. We call it the New Testament, but it's not so much out with the old and in with the new as it was peeling back the layers of religion and confusion that had built up over the centuries. Jesus himself said he did not come to abolish, but rather to fulfill. So make a note, Christianity is the fulfillment of what God started in the Garden of Eden when he told Adam and Eve, one of your descendants, Eve, will crush the serpent's head, that fallen angel, Satan, who had brought evil into God's perfect creation. Christianity is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through one of his descendants, all of the nations on the earth would be blessed. Christianity is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to David that one of his descendants would be the mighty Messiah king who would sit on his throne forever and restore the kingdom of God, which is the world put right even now through faith in Jesus and permanently when he comes again in glory. You know, sometimes it's harder to renew or restore something old than it is to tear it down and start over again. Now we see that surely all over central Florida these days in the building industry. I mean the motto around here seems to be knock it down and build something new. But that's not God's way with his creation. 
God makes things new by transforming, by restoring the beauty of his original design. For three years, these 11 disciples, in the real presence of God, in human flesh and blood, struggled to comprehend and to believe. Now, I don't actually know if it's intentional or not. But your pastors do three years of intense classroom training. Of course, in addition to the traditional residential seminary education, there are alternate paths to becoming a pastor, but the goal is the same. And that goal is that through seminary education, we might try to get it through our thick skulls, the biblical story of God. And how it has played out across the pages of history for better or for worse. And to draw a straight line with the creeds and the Lutheran confessions by which we can measure whether we're being faithful to the word or if we have gotten off track. With one year of internship that we call a vicarage tucked in for good measure, a practice run before we are sent out into the world which is where the real education begins. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews insisted. The disciples, these are the pastors, together with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers, both biological children of Mary and Joseph born after Jesus and all who had become his followers, about 120 in all were told in this text, met together and they devoted themselves to prayer. Look, this isn't some kind of hierarchy. This isn't a place where you come and the pastor tells you what you're supposed to do and how to do it while you sit passively and listen. The word devote literally means to persist obstinately, to adhere firmly, to be faithful to. Oh, to have these characteristics in our congregation. Look, we live in a society that believes that rugged individualism is the apex of human behavior. And in our time, it is rare to find such camaraderie, although we seem to seek it everywhere else with our sports teams and our politics. No, part of the vision of this place is going forward by developing an alignment around Christ so that we are all always pulling in the same direction. I said it last week, I'll say it again, when we are thoroughly immersed in the story of God, that is when we read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, we begin to see the world and our place in it as one opportunity after another to speak Jesus. Not just in our words, but in our attitudes and in our actions. They met together. The pastors and the people, and they devoted themselves to prayer. 
It is only when Jesus is the object of our devotions that human beings can coexist with all of our unique differences. Florida State Seminoles and Florida Gators together in the same place. Republicans and Democrats together in the same place. People from all socioeconomic and cultural backgrounds together. Jesus is the only bond that is strong enough than all of the other affiliations in this world that are constantly dividing us. Jesus is the one bond that can unite us to now face the obvious. What's the obvious? Something had gone dreadfully wrong with Judas. Somewhere along the way, Satan, that old liar, had wheedled his way into his thinking. Now surely no one except God himself knows what was in Judas' heart when he decided to betray Jesus to the religious authorities. But I can tell you how Satan works. On the way into a sin, he tries to convince you that it is the only way for you to be happy or feel secure. Listen, Judas, if Jesus continues, the way he is going is going to get you all arrested and maybe killed and even bring down the wrath of the Romans on the whole nation. Look, don't worry, they'll probably just rough him up a little bit and turn him loose and maybe then he'll calm down a little bit. Come on, Judas, you know this has to be done. If not you, then who? And then once you've stepped over that line... Satan turns on you, he shames you, he convinces you that there is no way out and that you are lost. Well, now you've done it. Judas, you'll never be able to show your face in public again. Even God will reject you for this one. Even though God, through his word, had foreseen that someone would betray Jesus, Judas could have said no. And trust me, God would have still found another way to get Jesus to the cross for our salvation. And what's more, even after he had fulfilled that fateful role, Judas could have turned back. Like Peter, like the rest of the 11 who had all equally abandoned Jesus but were forgiven and restored, but instead Judas despaired and tragically ended his life. Can you see Satan's pattern in your life? What is it that right now you think you have to have in order to be happy, even if it's only for a fleeting moment? What is it that you think will finally make you feel safe and secure, make you feel like you have finally made it to a place where you can rest and enjoy all that you have earned? We have got to continuously face the obvious. Satan is alive and well, although defeated and conquered by the cross and the, and the resurrection. But he's like a cornered animal. He spits and he hisses. 
Someone sent me this meme this week. First Peter 4 verse 3 says, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. A war in Ukraine. And we imagine that some combination of sanctions and more weapons will make it stop. A gut-wrenching school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and we think that more laws will prevent it. Of course, we have to consider all of those things, try them all and anything else that might be able to curb such evil. But can we please, please, please face the obvious that the world is not getting better? And Satan's lie, working itself out in way too many lives is that Jesus and his organized religion, the church, is helpless and worthless to make any difference. Like Judas, we are being tempted to despair and to turn away from Jesus, to turn away from meeting together and devoting ourselves persistently, obstinately, firmly adhering to God's word, that alone can transform us and can transform at least our little part of the world and little bits and pieces until Jesus comes again to make it new permanently. When life challenges us with what next moments, the resurrection changes the way that we answer the question. Meeting together, immersed in the word, devoted to prayer, facing the obvious, we now trust the Lord who knows the hearts of all to show us the way forward. You are dearly loved, forgiven continuously, bound for eternity in the new heaven and the new earth, sons and daughters of the one and only true triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Researchers estimate that human beings make about 35,000 decisions a day. Most of them are routine. Deciding to get out of bed, which I'm glad you did this morning what to wear, whether to exercise or not. But some of those decisions are like the one these first followers of Jesus made. Now, mind you, I am not talking about choosing between sinning and not sinning, like driving down the wrong side of the road. That should be obvious. <laughs> Satan is a liar. You should face that and choose not to sin. And then when you mess up anyway, turn back to God and he'll forgive you and teach you something that will help you make the next decision. But when the what's next is a question, I don't know, like should I attend this college or that college? Meet together with some fellow believers. Immerse yourself in the word. Persistently pray. Face the obvious that the world is a dangerous place. And choose to trust 
that God knows your heart and he wants only one thing and that is to bless you and to bring you through this wreck of a world into his real presence forever. Or when the what's next is a question of retiring or not, taking a new job or keeping the one you have, moving or staying put, Immerse yourself in the word. Persist in prayer with other believers. Face the obvious. And trust God to lead you forward. Look, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Amen.